I'm going to set this message up by talking a little bit about 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to summarize it for you a little bit because I'm going to give you a lot of backstory to kind of set up the message that I want to share with you today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, basically Paul starts out writing by saying, I don't want you to be unaware or ignorant. The forefathers, our forefathers, they all ate and they drank the same bread and the same drink that we have the opportunity to eat and drink from. Yet they perished and died in the wilderness because God wasn't pleased with them. Same bread, same water from the spiritual rock, which was Christ. They ate the manna every day, and yet God wasn't pleased with them. And many of them died in the wilderness. Now, I don't want any of you to die in the wilderness. I think we could all agree that the world around us is a type and shadow of a wilderness, right? There's a lot of darkness and, you know, godlessness. It's a terrible situation what we're seeing in the world around us, but that's been par for the course for a really long time. For us, our most important focus has to be that we don't let the world system or the mixture of the world to get into our hearts and in turn defile us, kill us, and then we don't accomplish God's purpose in our life. If this church is going to go where God is calling it to go, which I believe it will, so many of you are new, so many of you are coming, we've got, we've got the most ragtag group of people showing up to this church. We've got, we got a lot of unchurched people. We got a lot of people coming straight out of the world. We got a lot of people in recovery. We got a lot of ex-gang members. We've got the wealthy, the poor, and the in-between and every walk and stage of life coming here. And that's the way it should be. But the challenge is, is that if we don't get unified and we don't understand what it means to become one by the Holy Spirit every day, then we're gonna find ourselves being swayed by the struggles and the challenges, the lies and the deception that so many people bring in with them. And it's, I want them to come. I've told you guys, you know, I grew up in a church where it was ultra charismaniac and, you know, they would curse witches and tell them to get out and there's a witch here and I can feel and I can sense it. My attitude is let the witches come because the culture and the love and the power of God is stronger than anything that they have to carry. And so I'm not ever going to be sidetracked by that. I already know that they come. I already know that, that there's people that, you know, the presence of God draws everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And if it's your first time, you'll often sit next to the ugly next to you your first time. That's kind of how that works. I'm not calling any of y'all ugly. Yeah. You know, this, this, is, this was really a perfect church till you got here, till you showed up. That's right. So um, my premise of that is that when, when there's an outpouring of God's spirit, everything and everyone takes notice, right? We're seeing a move of God at, at an Asbury College in Kentucky, and there are five days, five days of lingering and waiting on the Lord. And now suddenly the world has caught attention and everybody's bussing and going. And I've already gotten invites like, hey, let's go. I don't know that I'm going to go. I'm just saying like, this is what happens when God shows up. And for us, for a very, very long time, we've worked at building a foundation to sustain the cloud on a greater level when he comes. Because I don't want you to fry your marriages out, your kids out. Every revival died because man put their hand on it. And they tried to control it. We've learned a lot from past revivals and we, we know that God does want to pour out his spirit and however he chooses to, we just need to have our hearts prepared for it. We have to be prepared for the presence of God. We have to be prepared for the warfare that's gonna come with the presence of God. Because it's awesome, but there's also adversity and suffering and persecution. 
when you take a stand for anything against the world system, if you preach the gospel in and of itself, it's offensive. I mean, I took a stand against pornographic books in elementary schools, and I'm written up in the front page of the paper. How I responded only positioned us for a greater outpouring because we chose not to fight the way that the world fights. But you just have to understand, if you're going to step into the more that God has for you, don't think that the devil's just going to sit by and go, oh, well, I had him. We'll see you later. He wants to he wants to keep you in his kingdom. And then if you choose to not stay in his kingdom, he wants to divide his house and bring division here. And so first Corinthians chapter 10, verse six says, all these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. This is talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. So they found themselves falling into sexual immorality they found themselves falling into idolatry. They found themselves tempting Christ. This, in this section, I'm just summarizing it for you. That's when the serpents bit them and the snake was raised up on the pole. They found themselves complaining repeatedly. And it goes on to say that thousands and thousands and thousands who ate the bread, drank the rock, sat under the cloud, died. So just because we came here, you got touched you experience the presence of God, which I love. Just because we can drink together and eat together doesn't mean that God would not find himself or would, would find himself not fully pleased with you. Why? Because there has to be more. There's more that God requires. Of course, rooting out sexual immorality, rooting out idolatry, rooting out complaining. We all have to do that. Every single one of us has to take a stand in a society where that's more and more pervasive than it's ever been, especially with cell phones, right? Especially with the normalization of pornography, where it's becoming totally acceptable, especially when we have a society that's so godless that they think that it's okay to talk to little children about sexual issues and their identity when they're five. And it's not normal. It's not okay. It's normal to the world, but it's not for us, right? And so the example here, this scripture is saying, look, look what happened to them. They perished. Many of them got, and in fact, an entire generation didn't make it into the promised land because of their repeated, constant complaints. All right? And then verse 10 I'm sorry, verse 11 through 12, it says all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him, verse 12, think, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. So really a lot of what I'm gonna talk about today is this understanding of taking heed. What does it mean to take heed? It means to constantly pay attention and to constantly be proactive. Don't get caught off guard. Stop being reactive. And there's a way to be proactive spiritually. And it's a, the onus is on me as much as it's on you. I fight the same fight. I don't get a pass because I'm the pastor. In fact, I think it's often a hundred times harder is how I feel. But if they're our example, we can learn from them. And if we don't take heed, then all of us will fall. And we also have to be careful of pride because pride is this understanding to think, man, I, I've arrived or I'm doing good. You know, here's the deception of doing good. I finally stopped sinning. I'm good. And that's the deceptive lie. That's the lie of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about right, wrongs, to sin, to not to sin. He loves me. He doesn't love me. Stop living in that world. You know, I remember when I was overcoming, you know, lust in my early days and I was tracking my days of recovery. And I felt the longer that I went, the and I'm not opposed to tracking days in recovery for you know, redeemed and NA and AA and a year sober. I, th I think we celebrate that. I'm at like 28, 29 years of sobriety or more. Gosh, 30 years. 
So that's not my point. We want to celebrate your recovery and celebrate sobriety and the brokenness of addiction. But the problem is, is when you're counting the days to justify yourself, to feel good about yourself or to think you're good, then what happens when you fall short, you fall into shame and victim mentality and now you're not good. You can't live your life like that. The only thing that makes us good is the love of Christ and the power of God inside of us and our full dependency and brokenness and contrition with him. That's what God takes. So when we think about accomplishing the purposes that God has for us, we have to always be reminded it's never because of your righteousness. Is Deuteronomy 9. The Lord, through Moses, in, in Moses' final speech to the Israelites before they cross over the Jordan, he says, look, when you get over there, let me tell you what you're about to uh, come against. The people are going to be there and they're way bigger and they're way mightier. There's giants there and they're stronger than you. And they have walls built to the sky. The cities are fortified and they're giants and they're stronger and they're more powerful than you are. But don't be afraid because I'm going to actually go before you as a consuming fire and because I hate that wickedness that's in that land. And by the way, it's not because of your righteousness. I'm not doing this at all because of how good you were. It's never because you, you did everything right when it comes to sinning or not sinning. We have to root sin out of our life. Righteous position because of the blood requires righteous living. They go hand in hand. Because of my position, it produces a result out of me. Understand? But you're first in the position. And then because of that position, you get the strength to root it out. So taking heed is, is staying humble. Taking heed is removing pride. Taking heed is... I'm so completely focused on Christ all the time that as Jehoshaphat said, I have no idea what to do. The people that are coming against us are so powerful. Let's see if I pull that up for you. Well, it's in, it's in first, second Chronicles, like chapter 13, I believe it is. He's outnumbered and he says, look, we don't know what to do. We're powerless against this enemy, but my eyes are on you. And the truth is, is in and of your own strength, you are powerless. Again, back to the recovery dynamic is the faster that you can realize you're powerless and you can't do it in your own strength, the faster you get your eyes on the Lord. So you realize that God allows these adverse situations many times to reveal to you your powerlessness and that there's no way out but him. So I'm gonna give you a little backstory on Solomon and the splitting of the kingdom of Israel. We go all the way back to 975 975 years before Christ was born, 975 BC. Y'all of you should know the story, but I know some of you don't, so I'm going to paraphrase it for you. There was no one like Solomon in wealth and wisdom. But Solomon fell into what I call the dark side of wisdom. He knew too much. And he became apathetic. And in his apathy and his old age, and all the wives that he was marrying, 700 with 300 concubines. I mean, it's insane. I was like, how could anybody ever be married to 700 wives? And the Lord in his sense of humor is like, how can somebody look at 700 women on porn? Anyway, that's the conversations I have with the Lord. So Solomon's heart goes astray. And he actually falls into the most despicable of things. You never would imagine what he was doing. Full-scale idolatry. He, married, he completely defied God by marrying women from the other nations of the world who brought their idolatry into his heart and into his life. And polygamy was never God's design, just so that you understand, ever. All the way back to the garden, one man, one woman. 
Deuteronomy 17, there's a whole chapter on protocol for kings. And in it is one man, one wife, one woman. You say, well, how come God allowed it? Well, we could probably ask him when we get there, but I can tell you at the end of the day, it always brought destruction to the heart of man and it was never God's original intent. And so Solomon's heart goes astray. And he starts literally worshiping the worst of the worst, like setting up temples to Molech and baby sacrifice stuff. Like really, he really goes off the deep end. And in first Kings chapter 11, verse nine, this is what the, what happened. First Kings eleven nine. 9, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him two times. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. And this sets the stage for Israel to be divided into two kingdoms. Many people don't know the story, so I'm setting it up for you. You would have basically 10 tribes go to Israel and two tribes stay with Judah, Benjamin and Judah. The other 10 would become Israel. So you have the Southern kingdom of Judah and the Northern kingdom of Israel. But this is where it began. This is how the split happened. Solomon's heart goes astray. He literally is destroying the kingdom of God. He has the promise of David, his father, the lineage of the Messiah. And now he's full scale in idol worship and lust and idolatry, just rampant. So one, there were several subordinates and several adversaries that came against him, but one of them was his own officer who was over the labor force. Now follow me, I'm gonna tell you a story, okay? The guy that was over his labor force is a guy by the name of Jeroboam. He would be the very first king of Israel, the 10 tribes. For the sake of conversation today, we're going to call Jeroboam J. Because there's another guy named Rehoboam. We're going to call him Ray. We got J and we got Ray, all right? So Jay, Jeroboam, receives a prophetic word from a prophet. This prophet's name is Ahijah. It means the Lord is my brother. And Ahijah comes along and gives a prophetic word to Jay, Jeroboam, that God would rip the kingdom into 12, into, into 12 pieces and that he would get 10, which would turn into the northern kingdom of Israel. Are you guys tracking? All right. So Solomon would catch wind of this and in jealousy and rage, try to kill Jay. So Jay would jet to Egypt. Are you tracking? This is the most ultra Sunday school way I can explain this to you. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm, look, we're gonna, I'm gonna deliver you strong, meaty words right now because that's what we need and where we're at, all right? Can you guys track? Try. I know somebody's like, man, I've never read the Bible. That's okay. Just follow along. You got Jay and we're gonna see Ray here in a minute, all right? And Solomon just went sideways, okay? So Solomon would catch one and try to kill him. He would flee to Egypt, hide out until... Ray. Now, who's Ray? Rehoboam is actually Solomon's son. All right. So, Ray, Solomon's son, when Solomon dies, Ray or Rehoboam would become the first king of Judah. All right. Okay. And so, after Solomon dies, and after his son, Ray, is made king, actually, Ray is made king of all of Israel. They haven't split yet. Jay says, I'm coming out of Egypt. I'm coming back. All right? In Second Chronicles 10, Jay, or Jeroboam in Israel, would approach Ray. So Ray gets made king. And Ray, Solomon's firstborn son, 
or first son that takes over, is literally afflicting the nation of Israel with a tax burden. Like, and that's what Solomon was doing at the end of his life. So Solomon was just burdening down the nation with taxes and let forced labor. And Ray does the same thing. When Jay comes back, he gathers up all of Israel and they go to Ray and they say, listen, lighten the load. Your father was putting too much of a burden on us, Solomon. And you are now too. And we can't take this weight. You're overtaxing us. You're overburdening us. Will you please lighten the load? So Ray consults the older wise men and they're like, yes, this is a good idea. But Ray rejects their counsel and goes to his buddies, his peers. And they say, tell him this, my little finger is bigger than my father's waist. If you thought his burden was heavy, I'm going to crush you. So basically, Ray goes next level. And then you have a revolt. Jay gathers up the nation of Israel, gets the prof- has, has the prophecy from Ahijah that the nation's going to split. And basically, Jay rebels with 10 tribes against Ray and the two tribes of Judah. He rebels. And he says, we want nothing to do with the son of Jesse. David is not our father. All right? Are you tracking? Just track. I'm going to make a killer point here in a minute if you'll follow along. I, I promise you. I promise you. So now what happens is the nation splits. The first kings are Ray and Jay. Got it? Jay has 10 tribes. Ray has two tribes. The nation split into two. But something really unique happens at this time. All those priests, the Levites and uh, the tribe and Aaron, all the Levite tribe, the sons of Aaron, those that basically took care of the, temp- the temple, they all chose to stay with Judah, despite how jacked up Ray was. They chose to stay with Judah. Israel, on the other hand, goes full scale into witchcraft. Now, I'm summarizing the story. You can read it. It's fascinating. They literally recruit high priestesses, witchcraft, women and men, and idol- they make golden calves, they make idols, all of it. And Israel goes full scale into idolatry when they leave. Are you tracking? Judah, on the other hand, despite their own dysfunction, has the Levites who are still honoring God in the tabernacle. Now, the truth is they're all jacked up. This is really a, a difficult story because it's civil war. The nation's in civil war, all right? And so ultimately, Ray would abandon and forsake the law of the Lord, the king of Judah. Second Chronicles twelve fourteen. this is talking about Ray. He did evil. And here's the, re, here's how, the most evil thing that he did. He didn't prepare his heart to seek the Lord. Now you have to catch this because this is a picture of where we're going and the understanding of preparation in advance so that you're prepared no matter what comes. Because you, you're gonna see a story of a, the, the first civil war that actually takes place between Ray's son, Abijah, and Jay. But what was the issue with Ray is he didn't set his heart to seek the Lord. If I can make one point right here, it'd be, listen, beloved, I don't care where you're at. If you're brand new to the church and never read your Bible, learn what it means to prepare your heart to seek the Lord. Make the preparations every day and don't turn away from it no matter what. Kingdom splits, Israel rejects David. Rehoboam and Judah would then be attacked from Egypt. Ray would be attacked from Egypt. They'd get their heinies handed to him. They'd lose their temple treasure, treasures of the royal palace, and the, all the golden shields that Solomon were, made, were taken away. This is under Ray's watch. 
But Ray would humble himself. He'd cry out for mercy. God be merciful. He would be merciful and relent to Judah. It was still a bad situation, but they survived. And in 2 Chronicles 12, 8, God says this. They will, however, become subject to him. This is basically the Egyptians, so that they may learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings of other, la- other lands. There's a difference between serving God and serving the world system. The world system, you know, I, I've said this before, there's a difference between the Holy Spirit and demons. The Holy Spirit leads you, demons drive you. He's a taskmaster. The devil is a, is a taskmaster. And many people see God from a, a master-slave mentality. They see God as a taskmaster, but he's not. The devil is. And so he says, look, if you're not going to prepare your heart, you're going to turn away. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to let the Egyptians come in, and I'm going to teach you this lesson. Who's better to serve? And for so many of us, we've learned the hard way who's better to serve. And I've come to the place through adversity, hardship, and massive amounts of failures, beating my head against a wall, that it's way better to serve the Lord. Because the world system, money, uh, mammon, avarice, chasing wealth, career, trying to fit in with the world, wanting what the world happens, you know, celebrity stars in our eyes, the music we listen to, all the stuff that filters into our heart will ultimately become our taskmaster if we don't cut it out. That's why the Lord says friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Doesn't mean we don't want to save the world and love it to lay our lives down, but we must stop being friends with the world. Do you understand? God calls you out of Egypt and he shows you a better one to serve himself, full of love and life and the fruit of the spirit. Okay, all right. So then Ray dies. Then he died. And his son, Abijah, becomes king, son of my father. Or God is my father. Battle lines are drawn between Abijah and Jeroboam because they're still really mad at each other. The fact that they split and the Israelites now who are in full-scale idol worship, basically worshiping Satan, are so mad And really the devil's behind the scenes. Let's see that the devil wants to kill Judah because the promise of the Messiah is in Judah. All right? So they're frothing at the mouth, manifesting against Judah. And war ensues. And Abijah comes out with 400,000 mighty men of valor. Jay comes out with 800,000 men of valor. Abijah, the son, is outnumbered two to one. All right? You tracking? This is a really big war, a really big war. And it's terrible because it's full-scale civil war. They're going to kill each other's brethren. And Abijah tries to stop it. Let's read the story. Second Chronicles 13, 10 through 18. Second Chronicles 13. Abijah's addressing the nation of Israel before they go to battle. He says, as for us, the Lord, our God, the Lord is our God. We haven't forsaken him. The priests who serve the Lord are sons of Aaron and the Levites assist them. Every morning and evening, they present burnt offerings and fragrant incense to the Lord. They set out the bread on the ceremonial, ceremonially clean table and light the lamps on the gold lampstand every evening. We are observing the requirements of the Lord our God, but you, Israel, have forsaken him. God is with us. He's our leader. His priests with their trumpets will sound the battle cry against you. People of Israel, do not fight against the Lord, the God of your ancestors, for you will not succeed. Verse 13, but Jay had sent troops around the rear so that while he was in front of Judah, the ambush, there was an ambush, ambush that came behind them. Judah turned and saw that they were being attacked at both front and rear. Then they cried out to the Lord. 
the priests blew their trumpets and the men of Judah raised the battle cry. At the sound of their battle cry, God routed Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. The Israelites fled before Judah and God delivered them into their hands. Abijah and his troops inflicted heavy losses on them and there were 500,000 casualties among Israel's able men. The Israelites were subdued on that occasion and the people of Judah were victorious because why? Because why? They relied on the Lord. Let's go back to verse 11. And here's the point of my message today. Every morning, let's say every morning, say it with me. That's right. Now, some of you have to learn what that looks like. When you come into the kingdom, you have to change your ways, change your habits, change your patterns. Things shift. Most men, when they wake up first thing in the morning, what most men used to do is get their coffee and read the newspaper. We don't, we don't want you reading the newspaper here anymore. <laughs> most men will have a pot of coffee or half a pot of coffee, get ready, plan out their day, work, 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 get up, go work all day long, come home. We worked all day, we worked hard, and the Lord's a second afterthought until maybe Wednesday or Sunday or a little bit here and there. I want you to notice this pattern. Every morning and evening, they present burnt offerings and fragrant incense to the Lord. They set out the bread on the ceremonial clean table. They lit the lamps on the gold lampstand every evening. We're observing the requirements. This is a requirement of the Lord, our God, but you've forsaken him. God is with us. He is our leader. The question is, who's our leader and who are you relying on? When these things are in place in our lives and you rely on the Lord, even when you're outnumbered, you're going to be outnumbered. You're going to be outnumbered. Somehow God just designs it that way, where the odds are against you in the natural. It, does it ever feel like so much of the time odds are always against you in the natural? The odds against the church are increasing while we increase, look around. Because God has this way of expanding his kingdom in the midst of pressure and opposition and pressing. That's where the olive oil comes out. That's where the incense comes up is in the crushing, right? Even when you're hemmed in on all sides, notice they had nowhere to turn. Jay had set an ambush front and back. They had nowhere to turn. Even when witchcraft idols and the gates of hell are coming against you, I don't think that I can really accurately portray just how much witchcraft Israel had given themselves to. You have to read the story. But because you were in the presence in advance, because you prepared yourself proactively and you stayed true, God fights for you. He removes the fear and in turn brings confidence. And it's not because of your righteousness, but because he loves you and you chose to love him no matter what. It's not your perfection, but it's his in you. We must live in the inner court by approaching God properly. And then we get access to the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. So let me bring that picture up of the, of the tabernacle in the wilderness real quick. There were a couple of them. That's a good one. Just leave that there. So <clears throat> I'm just showing you this in short. Because what I want you to understand is this is the picture of today. This is the example. People would come out of the wilderness or out of Egypt is a, is a, or out of the world system today, and they would come right to the brazen altar. The brazen altar is where is about a six foot by six foot raised box where they would have animal sacrifice. That's the picture of the cross today. We got to kill your animal nature. The further you get away from your animal nature, the more you're going to see how much animal nature there really is in the world. It's like, I go back to listen to all the music, all the stuff that I used to listen to. And I'm like, oh, how much animal stuff is in there? And we all at one time lived like an animal. So when we come to the cross, listen to me, there's little children in here. So I have to be careful what I say, but what's going on in the world system is another level of animal. All right. The answer to animal is the brazen altar, which is the cross. You must come to the cross, beloved. Die at the cross. Let's burn up that animal nature. 
Second is you go to the brazen altar. See that little bowl? It was made of women's, women's uh, brass mirrors. So when you wash, you saw the reflection of yourself. Washed by the word, an accurate reflection of your identity, baptism. And then you would step into the inner court. And inside the inner court, in that tent, you would have three things. You'd have the table, golden altar of incense, the table of showbread, and you would have the candlestick. Now notice what Abijah said. The Lord's with us because every day the priests burn the incense, prepare the showbread, and keep the fire burning. This is the place you're to live from once you come into the kingdom. If you're a Christian, we have to stop coming in and out of Egypt to the cross over and over and over again. Will God take you? Yes, because he loves you. But what if you chose to live your life in the inner court? And now when you're in the inner court, God shows you things that have to die at the cross. It's like, excuse me for a minute. I need to step out this curtain, go back to the brazen altar because God revealed to me in the inner court an issue in my heart that needed to be burned up. Versus, excuse me, I've got to step back in from the outer court where I was giving myself to addiction, pornography, lust. Are you tracking what I'm saying? You got two choices of how to live your life. Now, I want you to understand something about me, which is why I'm so patient. I think I've lived most of my Christian life coming in and out of Egypt. But not anymore. And my challenge to all of us is to live an inner court life. Now, what does an inner court life look like? An inner court life is this understanding of the three things inside the, the inner court. First is the altar of incense. The altar of incense is me on my knees, making altars of prayer under the bridge. I may not be on my knees per se, I'm sitting in my truck, but every, you need to make altars of incense. Jesus made the Garden of Gethsemane right before his death an altar of incense. The mountain as was his habit. He retreated as was his habit. Here can be an altar of incense. But we make our lifestyle a place of continuous prayer, incense being prayer. We titled my message about incense, it's time to start smoking. Because it is. And I'm not talking about doobies and cigarettes or bongs. I'm talking about burning before the presence of God. So a fragrant offering. Remember what I said, stay smelly, my friends, right? You want to smell like Christ. So you're constantly dwelling with them in intimacy, lighting the incense, being crushed. Good incense only comes from crushing. In this world, you have trouble. Take heart. Stop rejecting the trouble. Just be broken and allow beauty to come out of you in the midst of it. And then you have the table of showbread. What's the table of showbread? It's the manna and it's fresh every day. Every day. Give us this day our daily bread. Matthew 6, 11, I think it is. Matthew 6, 11. Yes, I got it right. When I take stabs at scripture, I often like one or two off. What is this wasn't talking about? Help, Lord, please, God, help me to make more money so I can put food on the table. God does care about you. That's not the premise of the scripture. The premise of the scripture is that you learn to eat the manna every day. Lord, please don't. I need fresh bread every day so that I don't die in the wilderness. Like those other Israelites I did when I started talking about this. So the table of showbread is everyday communion. I'm challenging you. Please hear me. I'm under more pressure than I've ever been in my life with children, businesses, and this church. And out of that pressure, I've prepared my heart to seek the Lord more than I've ever sought him before. I will manifest. I won't like you. I'll want to quit. I'll be divided. I'll get mixture in my heart. Do you understand? This is not me just preaching to you. This is me preaching to my own self. No one gets out of this. And I know what God wants to do in this city. I know what God wants to do in your family. I know what God wants to do in this house. Re true revival is coming to this community. You know, I posted something because I was listening to an awesome message from Jeremy Riddle who preached at Dwelling Place. And he's like, the fastest thing to kill revival is sin. And it hit me. The fastest way to bring revival is confession of sin. But 
stop sinning, my friends. Go, go and sin no more. I mean, I don't know how much more to say that, but if you do, you have an advocate. And the, the biggest sins aren't probably the ones that destroy the body. It's the ones hidden in your heart that come out of your mouth. All right, big smile. All right, big smile. And so I'm going to finish, but I'm going to finish by saying this to you. Matthew 6, 6, you should all have this memorized. This is one of my life scriptures. When you pray, go into your room and when you've shut your door, pray to your father who's in the secret place. Think of the inner court as a secret place lifestyle. And every day I get fresh bread. Every day I make an altar of incense in communion with the Lord. And then every day God lights the fire in my heart. The candlestick is the picture of the Holy Spirit putting his fire on the inside. That's why we have a term here, you need to be flamed on. Get baptized in the Holy Spirit. Don't believe the lies of cessationists. It's for everybody. Flame on, get the, get the more that God has for you. Pray in tongues a lot. And if you don't know what that is and you think it's weird, read your Bible and let us teach you. I do it publicly to teach you, to show you this should be the normal Christian life. And you know what flames me on is a lot of tongue praying, a lot of altar kneeling, a lot of fresh bread baking and eating, a lot of candlestick in my heart. Because you know why? Somebody's going to ambush me. You're going to get ambushed. I wish I could tell you it's different. And you know what? What makes it even worse is this was brother on brother. And I said to you a while back, what if your greatest persecution wasn't from the world, but your own brothers and sisters? Even Jesus' family said he was out of his mind. Get him out of the house to stop ministering. Even his brother said, if, if you are really who you say you are, why don't you go on up to Jerusalem and show yourself? Even his own brothers in the beginning didn't believe that he was who he was. This is a, the story in and of itself is a tragedy of civil war, but it's a beautiful picture. What did the, what did Judah do when they were hemmed in? They cried out, but they cried out knowing they would get an answer. They cried out knowing they would get an answer. I'm going to tell you this brokenness with contrition. God answers every time it says in Psalm 51, 17, I've been hitting this repeatedly. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a contrite heart. Contrite means man, I hate what I did. I'm sorry, Lord. I hate all the women that I slept with. I hate the drugs that I sold to teenagers. I hate the abuse that I did. I used everybody for my own gain. I even hate so much of what I did in my early Christian life because it was still all about me and I was walking in an orphan spirit even as a believer because I had to learn the Father's love over the course of time. I had to learn what it means to be rested and to be real and authentic and genuine and not care what anybody thinks about me. That's hard for some of us. Especially if you were raised with a dad that drove you in performance and measuring up. And, you know, I was classically raised in that. Go to college, get a career so you can make a lot of money so you can provide for your family. And then if you do good, I'm going to reward you and pay you for it. So all my whole life, I also was trying to do good in that context. And if that's been your story, just repent and just say, I want to live an inner court life. You'll get there. It'll take some time for some of you. Some of you can start it immediately. But this message should set something in motion for you to know there's a better way to live your life. What if you lived your life in the inner court and you just came out to be washed because God was refining you? And it doesn't mean that I don't go out into Egypt, but now I'm not living in the world as the world. I'm not of it. That's what Jesus said. He said, you're in it, but not of it. It doesn't mean I just also hide out full time in church. Somebody's got to go out and preach the gospel. But who's influencing who? You know, it's like God will call you back to your Egypt, but not if your Egypt is going to influence you. Right? I remember right after I gave my life to the Lord and I went back to Miami I was like, man, I'm going to save all my deadhead lost friends. And within like three days, I was smoking a bong. That's what I'm saying. I didn't have the strength yet, the stamina, the wisdom. I hadn't come far enough out of it yet. It still was entangled. There was still mixture in my heart. 
You find your groove. Get in the secret place and intimacy. Live an inner court life, and maybe you need to hide out. Change your number. Cut out the friends. Friday nights and Saturday nights when your friends that used to go out with party into the clubs, you're going to stay home, click the line, and read your Bible till you fall asleep by 9 o'clock. I know for some, you're like, man, that sounds miserable, but I promise you, it's, it is the best. It is the best, right? Some, and some of you are like, huh? What are you talking about? Yeah, anyway. So I, I just, I want you to know this understanding it's not because of my, notice it wasn't because of righteousness. It was because I kept the lamp burning. It wasn't because, man, I didn't sin or I was perfect. It was because I ate from the fresh bread or I kneeled at the altar in my personal life consistently. What you do in secret, God rewards openly in every area of your life. God knows what you need. He cares about you. He loves you. And when you don't know what to do, we sang the song to do. When you don't know what to do, we keep our eyes on him. He's got our back. It's the only piece of armor you don't get is something for your back because it requires total trust to know that he's behind you. You ever told somebody in a really difficult situation, I'm behind you? Well, the Lord says I'm behind you. You say, well, I'm so bad. I'm so jacked up. Bro, you ain't that bad. There's worse. There's worse. And we were all bad at one time. All right? So close your eyes for a moment and let me speak into your heart a picture of an inner court life. All right? Just receive this. Lord, I thank you that you're going to show us our spots and our places. You're going to show us how every morning and every night what it means to light the incense, to bake fresh bread, and to keep the fire burning. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for you, beloved. You can flame on more than you've ever flamed on before. God has so much more in store for you. He loves you. He loves us. I thank you so much, Lord, that we can make a preparation. Show us how to prepare to seek the Lord. That's my prayer, God. Night and day, when we face unjust judges everywhere around us, may we cry out to the Lord and may you avenge speedily against our adversary. Lord, I... Thank you that when we're hemmed in, when we're outnumbered, and we don't know what to do, our eyes are on you. We are powerless, Lord, but through you, we're powerful. You make us powerful. You trade our powerlessness for strength, brokenness. I thank you, Lord, that Everyone here who's been struggling in their marriage, struggling in their home, struggling with their children, struggling with their finances, struggling with lust, addiction, their flesh just getting the best of them. Lord, I just pray we'd come back to that brazen altar all the time, back to the cross. Lord, the place where you took our shame, you bore our grief, you bore our burdens, you bore our infirmities, the chastisement of our peace was upon you. I thank you that we don't have to self-inflict ourselves. We just have to surrender ourselves. I pray everyone here would live a life of surrender and desperation to know that you can talk to the Lord everywhere you go. Listen to his voice. Repent of your sin. I thank you so much, Lord, that this church is an inner court. Thank you that in this house, there's an altar of incense a table of showbread and a candlestick and you walk in the midst of it. I pray, Lord God, that you would show us what it means to live an inner court life where we seek you every minute of the day. We pray without ceasing. We disengage from the world and 
popularity of the world and trying to be relevant with the world. We don't have to be relevant with the world. We have to be relevant with you. Pour out your fire in this place, Lord. And when we're ambushed, may we cry out to you and blow the trumpet. May we shout out, call out, reach out. And may you deliver us when our adversary and enemy comes against us. May we learn from the examples of those that perished in the wilderness, not lust after the things of this world and sexual immorality. Please, Lord, it's only by your grace, God. It's only by your grace we can turn away. Lead us not into temptation. And actually, Lord, when it comes, lead us away. Lead us away, Lord. There's no temptation that's not common to man. But when it comes, you'll make an escape route. Lord, may we take the escape route every time. And may we prepare in advance by living in the inner court, which leads to the Holy of Holies. the promises of God, the presence of God, which changes us in an instant, which moves our heart, which opens our eyes, transforms us from the inside out. It's your presence, God, the Holy of Holies. We'll make a decision to live in the inner court and let you take us in to your presence whenever you want. I bless everybody here. I bless your marriages, your children. For those that are single, I speak strength to your purity. I speak strength to your purity. Those battling addiction today, whatever the addiction is, whatever the vice is, God, I pray you'd show us that way out, make a way where there seems to be no way Change the desires of our heart, Lord, to not even want it anymore. Please, God, that's my prayer. Change our heart desire to be for you more than the things of this world. I pray a quickening to your mortal bodies and I pray God would heal you and strengthen you. Speak life to you. You are a mighty remnant. You are a warrior church. You're the bride of Christ. You're the, his beloved. When you go out of these four walls today and out these doors, I pray that everywhere you go, in your homes, your cars, school, family, children, work, that you would just smell as a fragrant offering the beautiful life of Christ. It's my prayer for you. Thank you, Jesus, for being with this house and this family. We love you so much. In your name we pray, amen.